Hello, you're very welcome to Long Reads, a Jacobin podcast where we look in depth at political topics and thinkers. My name's Daniel Finn. I'm the features editor here at Jacobin, and I'll be presenting the show. You're listening to the anthem of the French resistance, Le Chant des Partisans. French political life was still marked by a dramatic rupture that opened up in the summer of 1940. After the French army suffered heavy losses on the battlefield against Germany, the country's parliament handed power to Philippe Pétain, a highly decorated war hero. Pétain signed a deal with Hitler that left northern France under direct German rule, including Paris. He set up his own regime at the town of Vichy, which became a byword for collaboration in occupied Europe. Vichy officials organised the deportation of Jews to the Nazi death camps. Meanwhile, a renegade French officer, Charles de Gaulle, went to London and pledged to fight on. Inside France, resistance groups began organising to fight against Nazi Germany and its French collaborators. Ever since the liberation of France by the Allies in 1944, a fierce debate has raged in French politics about the experience of occupation and resistance during the war. It remains a matter of political contestation today. Our guest today is Jim Wolfries. Jim teaches French politics at King's College in London. He's the author of Republic of Islamophobia, The Rise of Respectable Racism in France. How would you account for the rapid French capitulation to Nazi Germany in the summer of 1940? Was it primarily dictated by military factors or was there a defeatist spirit among the French ruling class for other reasons? Okay, so the the defeat of France took six weeks and this was a an army that was supposed to be the best in Europe. So the fall of France was a was a major shock. Pétain's line after the defeat was that it was a product of the Popular Front, that France had become decadent, that military shortcomings were basically a reflection of political weaknesses inherited from the politics of the 30s. And this was a very important argument because if that could be established, that defeat was a symptom of something else, then the armistice and the collaborationist policies of the Vichy regime could become more palatable. So the the Republic had created a situation that had led to the defeat and therefore the imperative wasn't opposing the occupying force, it was establishing the radical measures necessary for national renewal. So that was Pétain's line on the on the one hand. De Gaulle argued that military failings were at the root of the defeat that it was a, a question of tactics, that the military command of France had been taken by surprise. And so there was some truth in in this, although studies subsequently have, have shown that France wasn't necessarily any worse prepared than Britain, that Germany had a superior military strategy, making use of mobile divisions, tanks, aircraft, but, but that France mobilized massively for the war, that the Battle of France was a was a real conflict, that it wasn't simply a question of of the French army collapsing immediately, that there were errors made with defensive 
strategies on the part of the, the French, but the notion that decadence or the polarized nature of politics were, were to blame isn't really a credible argument. The real capitulation comes after the military defeat when elites make accommodations with Vichy, firstly via the armistice, and then the process of collaboration itself that sets in motion a logic that, that draws France into ever greater complicity with, with the occupying force. The following clip comes from the documentary series The World at War. A German officer describes the fall of Paris to Nazi forces in the summer of 1940. Arriving in the airspace over Paris, I observed that great columns of German infantry had already entered the town. Observing this and remembering that we had failed to reach this goal all through the First World War, I felt such uh, joy and exultation that I asked the pilot of my small plane, a so-called stork, whether it would be possible to perform a landing on the Place de la Concorde. After circling around some time, he and we came down on the Place de la Concorde, which was entirely free of any traffic, and landed on the outset of the Champs-Élysées. Two days after Paris fell, the new Prime Minister, Marshal Pétain, asked the Germans for an armistice. Reynaud had been opposed to a separate peace and resigned. In most of France, the news of an armistice was received with relief. Hitler insisted on using for the negotiations Marshal Foch's old railway carriage in the woods of Compiègne, where the 1918 armistice had been signed. It was the supreme humiliation for France. To what extent was the Vichy regime that took shape after the French surrender a homegrown product, so to speak? And how does it compare to other right-wing authoritarian states of the time, from Hitler and Mussolini to Franco and Salazar? So the the main difference in terms of the Vichy regime is that it came to power on the back of a defeat. So it was a subordinate administration. So it did have a lot of parallels with fascist and authoritarian regimes elsewhere. It had a, an authoritarian, racist, elitist agenda. It set up networks of informants, um, developed later a militia, but it didn't come to power on the back of the establishment of an independent movement, a mass movement, or uh, a single party state. So it didn't have the same roots in society as Hitler or Mussolini. There were similarities with the reactionary Catholicism of, say, the Franco regime, Vichy drew on the Catholic fundamentalist politics of Charles Maurras and Action Francaise and his identification of anti-national elements that had to be rooted out. So in that sense, Vichy's national revolution was 
part of a long-standing radical reactionary anti-Semitic tradition that had developed out of opposition to the French Revolution, opposition to the extension of democracy, but also it was influenced by the fascist organizations that emerged in in France after the First World War. So as time went on, the regime increasingly relied on repression, the centralization of a police force, the establishment of a of a militia. Pro-Nazi collaborators played an increasingly prominent role, but collaboration was also about conforming to a new status quo. So it wasn't it wasn't simply about ideological affiliation to to Nazism, and and more generally, there was a there was an assumption that a Nazi Europe was inevitable. That this was the the future. The Republic had run its course. And so there was a participation in the regime from established elites. So a kind of fusion of different elements in the Vichy regime that's similar to processes that took place in in Germany, Italy, Spain, Portugal, but with the difference that this was after a military defeat. So... Robert Paxton talks about Vichy as a as an episode in a French civil war, and so that the importance of anti-Semitic right wing reactionary traditions that pre existed military defeat were also important. So there was a, in other words, a dynamic that played itself out as a result of defeat, but there was also continuity with political dynamics that predated the defeat. The popular image of the relationship between Vichy officials and Nazi Germany was captured in a famous scene from Casablanca. Refugees from occupied Europe sing the Marseillaise in defiance of the German officers in Humphrey Bogart's club. The Nazi commander orders his French counterpart to break up the gathering. But everybody's having such a good time. Yes, much too good a time. The place is to be closed. But I have no excuse to close it. Find one. Everybody is to leave here immediately. This cafe is closed until further notice. Clear the room at once. How can he close me up? On what ground? I'm shocked, shocked to find that gambling is going on in here. You're winning, sir. Oh, thank you very much. Everybody out at once. Did the Vichy regime possess any significant degree of autonomy from Nazi Germany despite the occupation? The regime attempted to assert a degree of autonomy ideologically through the the assertion of its notion of a national revolution that france needed purging of the decadence caused by the existence of anti-national forces within france so jews freemasons communists foreigners so there was a, a logic of exclusion inherent in the regime from the beginning and a focus on the need to purify France of internal enemies, to unite the nation around traditional values and so on. So there were different phases in terms of 
how much autonomy Vichy actually had. In reality, it had very little. The illusion of autonomy initially, the fact that Pétain was this supposedly benign figure, the hero of Verdun, veteran officer, supposedly the friend of the, the ordinary soldier, and so on. This initial period where there was a widespread passive support, I suppose we could call it, for Pétain in the period of confusion after the, the defeat was the period of the National Revolution. So the emphasis on work, family, fatherland, the implementation of reactionary measures on, on abortion, on divorce, but also importantly, Vichy's own anti-Semitic legislation. So Vichy's own attempt to purify France of Jewish influence, all this was initiated without orders from the occupying forces. So cases of French nationality that had been granted in a decade or so before the defeat were, were revised. Jews were interned in camps, in French camps, then later sent to the, the death camps. So there was a participation in a complicity in the crimes of the occupation that weren't simply foisted on the regime from outside, but the extent to which Vichy had any capacity to act independently of the Nazis was shown to be illusory as the war developed. So from November 1942, the occupied zone is extended to the whole of France. Compulsory labour service in Germany is introduced. 700,000 French workers go to, to Germany. And so in that context, the notion that a regime with its slogan of work, family, fatherland being independent from from Germany is is nonsensical. So so France contributes more skilled workers to the to the war effort than any other occupied nation. And historians subsequently have argued that a, a directly Nazi administered France wouldn't have been worse necessarily than an occupied France with a complicit puppet regime. We're now going to hear two interviews recorded by the Holocaust Museum at Yad Vashem. Two survivors of the Nazi camps recall the deportation of Jews that was organised by French officials. One morning in July 1942, at six o'clock in the morning, they knocked on our door. And there was a uniformed French policeman and a plainclothes person which I don't know if he was French or German, I'm not sure. And they told us to get a few things together and to get some food for maybe two, three days, if we could, and to come with them. At that point, we were being arrested, in effect. Beatrice, my girlfriend, my school friend, and her mother, and me, we arrived at the famous or infamous Velodrome d'Hiver, and we came in there, 
and they showed us a corner where we're supposed to stuff some bag with straw to make our mattress, and then we could go down wherever we wanted. And in between this big velodrome diver, they had this big stands where the soldiers were standing to look down on us. How did the resistance to Vichy and to Nazism develop? And what was the relationship between the internal resistance on the one hand and the free French leadership of de Gaulle outside France on the other? So early on there was some resistance, but it remained um, fairly limited and sporadic, symbolic. This changed when Germany invaded Russia in June 1941. The Communist Party then officially engages in armed resistance, uh, in sabotage, in the killing of German soldiers, the introduction of compulsory labour in Germany from 1943 strengthens the resistance within France. But these groups are generally, certainly for the first half of the war, uncoordinated and in places disparate. Outside of France, de Gaulle, who's a relatively unknown figure in 1940, sets himself and his free French forces up as a, as a kind of government in waiting, plays a role in rallying support for resistance in the colonies. So when Britain and the US invade North Africa in 1942, French troops switch allegiance from Vichy to the, the Free French and de Gaulle gradually asserts control of Free French forces outside France by, by 1944. Within France, the different resistance groups are eventually brought together in 1943, a National Council of the Resistance is, is set up. It draws up plans for a post-war government. And here, de Gaulle's representative, Jean Moulin, plays an important role that's emphasised his role as a, as a war hero. He's, he's killed about a month after the establishment of the, the National Council of the Resistance by, by Klaus Barbie. So later, his, his status as a, as a war hero is established as part of the, the narrative that developed in the post-war period about the resistance. Would you say that the standing of the French Communist Party had been undermined in the long run by the Hitler-Stalin Pact and by its record before the Nazi attack on the Soviet Union in 1941? Not in the long term, because of what happens once the Communist Party joins the resistance. So the the Hitler-Stalin non-aggression pact in 1939 means that the party suffers in the short term. It loses significant number of members and adopts a line of opposing the war as a fight between imperialist powers. There are some exceptions to this, individual exceptions. There are communist activists who play an important role in a strike of 100,000 members in in northern France before the German invasion of, of Russia. But it's from the point that Russia is invaded by Germany in June 41 that the Communist Party enters the resistance, the only major party to do so in such an unequivocal way, engages in significant resistance activities, sabotage, intelligence work, the 
killing of, of, of German soldiers. Thousands of party members are, uh, are shot. And so it's, it's standing at the end of the war is incontrovertible because of the role that it plays in the resistance. It overshadows the initial period that's dominated by the Hitler-Stalin pact. When they poured across the border, I was cautioned to surrender. This I could not do. I took my gun and vanished. We've already heard Le Chant des Partisans. In tribute to the French resistance, Leonard Cohen performed a version of another song composed by Anna Marley during the occupation, which has a more wistful and elegiac tone. The frontiers are my prison. Oh, the wind, the wind is blowing. Through the graves, the wind is blowing. Freedom soon will come. Then we'll come from shadow. What role did the resistance play in the military struggle for the liberation of France after the Allied landings in 1944? So the resistance plays an important role in Normandy, for example, sabotaging railways and communication in, in northern France. It plays an important role in Paris. Hundreds of barricades are, are built in Paris. There's a, there's a strike in August 1944. Metro workers, the police go on strike. About a thousand resistors are killed in the, in the liberation of, of Paris. So by this point, the resistance has, has grown partly as a result of the different factors already mentioned that that push people into resistance activity but it's its role in the military struggle is a relatively significant one we're now going to hear two newsreel clips from the liberation of paris in 1944 the paris resistance men broke from behind the barricades and ran out into the reconquered streets of paris the news was flashed that paris had been liberated the germans who for four years had bullied and plundered the capital of france were rounded up like the common criminals they are. The heart of European civilization is beating strong again. Paris is free. Four years of courage and hope have been answered, and a flood tide of jubilation has burst forth. The people of Paris, always great performers in history's drama, rose to meet their liberators. Once more, France held high her head, Unswerving victory marched proudly along the Champs-Élysées. What kind of popular energies were set loose by the liberation of France that year? So in the initial post-war period, there's a wave of purges of collaborators. So popular, spontaneous rooting out of collaborators. It's estimated about 10,000 people are executed in in this immediate post-war period. There's a wave of strikes. There are groups of armed resistors still active and fears that there is going to be some kind of communist insurrection. And this 
partly because of the role of the Communist Party, doesn't happen. What was the policy of de Gaulle in the immediate wake of liberation? And what was the policy of the French communists? Would you say it would have been possible for them to have followed a different line under the objective conditions that existed at that time? De Gaulle and the communists worked together in the the provisional government of the immediate post-war period. The communists essentially have have a choice. Do they ensure stability, work with the, the provisional government and limit workers' demands, or do they do they back the insurrectionary possibilities of the of the period? They choose to work within the, the provisional government. They work with de Gaulle until nineteen forty six when there's a disagreement with de Gaulle who wants to to strengthen executive authority and the communists leave a year later following the establishment of the Fourth Republic, the, the implementation of the Marshall Plan, the beginnings of the Cold War, in other words. So there are possibilities opened up in the immediate post-war period, but it's the policy of the Soviet Union not to encourage revolutionary upheavals in countries like France in the, in the post-war period that essentially determines the Communist Party's attitude. What kind of reckoning, both legal and political, was there with the Vichy regime during the immediate post-war years? Was there a proper cleaning out or purge, if you like, of the civil service and the state machine that had worked for Vichy? There's a limited purge. There are the, the spontaneous purges of the immediate post-war period. Then there's a, there are official investigations into 350,000 civil servants. There are several thousand of them who are executed. But in the main, these civil servants are required for the rebuilding of post-war France. So that's where the, the resistance myth in the immediate post-war period, propagating the notion that nearly all French citizens supported the resistance, that that Vichy was an isolated minority. That was important in terms of limiting the purge and ensuring a degree of continuity with the state machine that, that comes to light later with the notorious individual cases of people who played a role under Vichy but then led protected lives in the in the post-war period, continuing to play a civil service role. We're now going to hear two clips from Britain's Pathé News that document the fate of Marshal Pétain. The proceedings of the Pétain trial have drawn out into weeks with little appearance of interest by the Marshal himself. A new note was struck by the appearance of the best hated figure in France, Pierre Laval. Haggard and worn from his last fateful journey from Spain, Laval was nevertheless full of fight as he addressed the court. Oily phrases dropped from the lips of the arch-quizzling, at present a witness but soon to take his place in the dock. The second clip presents a sanitised view of Pétain as a misguided patriot, in line with official propaganda at the time. To the little cemetery of poor Joinville, they carry the man to whom France would have paid her highest honours had he died before his love for France made him betray her honour. But in death, the little people remember only the man who saved France at Verdun. 
they and the veterans of Verdun where he asked to be buried. Instead, in a little graveyard where lie a number of our own war dead, they bury the last Marshal of France. What were the most important landmarks in the subsequent debate over historical memory since 1945? And how did the trials, which you mentioned there, of Vichy officials like Maurice Papon affect that debate? The initial post-war period is, is marked by various arguments that build up the role of the, the resistance that school textbooks talk about French people being resistors rather than collaborators. There's an argument developed that the role played by Vichy was as a shield and that de Gaulle and the resistance played the role of the the sword and that there was some kind of complementary relationship between the, the two. Attitudes change in the wake of 68 and and that's partly a questioning of the establishment it's partly the release of films like the sorrow and the pity books like robert paxton's book reveal along with the the stories of jewish survivors of the occupation that reveal the complicity of vichy france in the crimes of the occupation that vichy enacts its own measures against Jews is a willing collaborator with Nazi Germany. France, May 1968. The student protests and general strike of 1968 shattered the complacency of post-war French politics. Pathé News reported on the upheaval with the Latin Quarter of Paris in flames. France had been brought to its knees by a disenchanted majority who wanted more money, better working conditions, and a shake-up in the social system. Chaos ruled the streets. While the banks took stock of their reserves and eventually closed, housewives hunted for food as supplies dwindled. Earlier at the Assembly, the French Parliament, leading politicians from all parties arrived for a motion of censure against the government. Monsieur Pompidou, the Prime Minister, spoke convincingly against the motion. He won by a majority of 11 votes. But the dispute was gaining ground in the streets. Even before it had reached this stage, the government had set up urgent talks to control the conflict. It was too late. That night, the Latin Quarter of Paris became a battleground. The Prime Minister and leading government members desperately tried to stem the flood of dissent, but it was no use. But then there are a number of pivotal events that bring the question of Vichy and the crimes of the occupation into the, into the public eye again. So the emergence of, of the Front National as a major political player, so a party whose leadership certainly for most of the 1970s, had former members of the the Vichy militia, the Waffen-SS, Le Pen. Le Pen's political past included running a presidential campaign for a former Vichy minister. And so this draws attention to continuities between the present and the past. But then there are a a series of high-profile trials or attempted trials of collaborators. So Paul Touvier, 
was a member of the Vichy militia in Lyon, served under Klaus Barbie, and managed to escape for a number of years charges of crimes against humanity. We're now going to hear a clip from a British dramatisation of the trial of Klaus Barbie. The Nazi torturer worked for US intelligence after the war and his American friends helped him escape to Bolivia where he lived for many years. Barbie helped train right-wing death squads in Latin America. He was finally extradited and put on trial in 1987. Mr. again, do you swear without hate or fear to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth? Raise your right hand and say, I swear. I swear. Make your deposition, we are listening. I was arrested as a member of the resistance in the Jura and on the 3rd of May 1944 was taken to the Ecole de Santé Militaire in Lyon. The same afternoon I was brought up from the cells and met Barbie for the first time. He didn't hit me, but his team did for seven days and seven nights. I suffered atrocious injuries. Then Barbie went completely berserk. He smashed me with a padlock and chain and said, all right, you haven't said anything. Well, that doesn't matter. You'll be nacht und nebel, night and fog. No one will ever know what became of you. Later, I was transferred to Compiègne, then to Dachau, then to Buchenwald. There was a presidential pardon by Pompidou. There were police delays in investigations. There was um, the role of Catholic clergy providing him with safe houses that meant he wasn't arrested until the late 80s. And then there was delays in bringing him to court. So the individual case of Tuvier, in other words, brought to light the role of a number of institutions in French society, complicities, the failure of state institutions to achieve justice. He's eventually convicted in 1994, but the case of René Bousquet plays a similar role. Bousquet becomes chief of police under Vichy, organizes the roundup of Jews at the, the Winter Velodrome in 1942, and oversees, it's estimated, over 60,000 deportations to the death camps, total deportations of 76,000. And again, he he's not simply protected, he enjoys a successful career in the post-war period, is friends with Francois Mitterrand and it takes nearly 50 years for his role in the deportation of Jews to come to light. He's assassinated before he can come to trial. But the affair brings to light the role of Mitterrand, which itself raises a number of uncomfortable questions, not just about Mitterrand himself, but um, about the whole occupation period. So the fact that Mitterrand gives a series of kind of confessionary interviews towards the end of his second term as president. And this brings back not just memories of Vichy, but underlines the 
the element of continuity, both between Vichy and the period that preceding it, Mitterrand had kind of flirted with the with the far right, was honoured by the, the Vichy regime, later plays a role in the resistance, but continues cultivating his friendship with Bousquet in the post-war period, refuses to apologise as president for the crimes of the Vichy regime because he argues the Republic has nothing to do with that. France is not responsible for this. And it's only under Chirac in Jacques Chirac, becomes president in 95, apologises on behalf of the French nation for its complicity in the Holocaust, while stressing that another France existed, that there was a resistance and, and so on. By the time of François Mitterrand's death in 1996, his role under Vichy was well known. A report from Britain's Channel 4 News gave it pride of place. War disrupted Mitterrand's youthful ambitions. He joined the infantry, and as France fell to the Germans, he was wounded. He became a prisoner of war, and at his third attempt managed to escape. Back in France, Mitterrand worked at first for Marshal Pétain's pro-Nazi Vichy government. Later, he downplayed his ties with that regime and stressed his work for the resistance. But a recently discovered photograph showing Mitterrand with Marshal Pétain suggested a more uncomfortable truth. Mitterrand continued to lead a political double life, cultivating the extreme right and the extreme left to further his career. It was known that François Mitterrand was born in a, in a conservative family. Soon after the liberation, Mitterrand joined the government as its youngest minister. He was still known as a man of the right. He ran 11 ministries in 11 years, including the Ministry for Overseas Colonies. And it's the, the trial of Maurice Papon that highlights once again the role of individual civil servants who were complicit in the crimes of the occupation and then served in post-war administrations in the Fourth and the Fifth Republic. This is dramatically brought to light by, by Papon. But there's, an, there's another element with Papon. Papon plays a role in the deportation of Jews from the Bordeaux area in the war. But after the liberation, plays a role in French colonies, employing counterinsurgency measures. He is prefect of police in Paris, police under his command in October 1961, um, take part in the arrest of around 10,000 Algerians. Many of them are beaten to death, thrown in the, the Seine. And so he, he's forced to stand down after the kidnapping of Mehdi Ben Barker in 1965, the, the Moroccan politician, but still plays a role as director of the, the Sud Aviation Company, major aviation company, plays a political role on the French right. And so his trial, in other words, brings to light not just continuity between the Vichy regime and the post-war civil service, but continuity between actors in crimes of the occupation and actors in crimes of the colonial period. So it, it shines a light on the two dominant political taboos of the post-war 
era, one of which Vichy has begun to be addressed and the other that remains to be properly addressed. You mentioned Jean-Marie Le Pen earlier, and of course, since the 1980s, the far right organised around figures like Le Pen has become a permanent fixture on the French political and electoral scene. Le Pen himself reached the second round of the presidential election in 2002. His daughter reached the second round last time in 2017. How would you say that contemporary far-right movement has influenced the perception of Vichy in France? I think there are two processes that have been underway since the breakthrough of the the Front National on the far right and the, the mainstream right. One is Le Pen's attempts at revisionism. So there was a, a recognition by the far right in the immediate post-war period that the weight in public consciousness of the occupation period would prevent a fascist movement from developing in France. So in that sense, there's a, there's a notion certainly carried by people like Le Pen, that the crimes of the occupation have to be relativized or minimized if the far right is to, is to advance. The second process is one that takes place on the cusp between the far right and the mainstream right, which is a notion developed by the so-called Nouvelle Droite in the 1970s, which is the crimes of the occupation aren't our responsibility, they don't concern us, they have nothing to do with us. So you have a process on the one hand whereby Le Pen engages in negationist outbursts, talking about the Holocaust as a as a detail of the of the Second World War, making puns about the the gas ovens, using provocative language he calls AIDS sufferers Sidaik, so Sida AIDS, Sidaik echoes the the Vichy term for Jews, Judaic, and other outbursts about the the Nazi occupation not being particularly inhumane, constant return to the detail controversy on the part of Le Pen. So a deliberate, in-your-face denial of the crimes of the the occupation and an attempt to, to ridicule those who took those crimes seriously. Debates a, a, a Jewish minister of immigration, Lionel Stolleru, in 1989. Stolleru is talking about police raids to combat illegal immigration. Le Pen says, oh, you could organise a roundup. So the, there's that process on the one hand, which despite Marine Le Pen's much trumpeted uh, so-called detoxification of the organisation, she has also echoed, referring to Muslims praying in, praying in the street, saying this is like living under occupation. So the, in other words, the, the Front National has, has deliberately evoked the wartime period, has introduced measures like proposing quotas of immigrant children in schools or national preference for French citizens, rooting out cosmopolitan references in in school books. Um, so deliberately evoking Vichy. And 
on the part of the mainstream, there's been on the one hand an echoing of Front National policies. So measures that were introduced in the, in the mid nineties, for example, the right under Chirac proposed that anyone offering hospitality to immigrants would have to inform the relevant authorities of their, of their movements. So echoing legislation introduced under Vichy. So in other words, a process of capitulation to far right themes that have drawn comparisons with, with Vichy. But then on the other hand, continuity with this nouvelle droite agenda that Vichy has nothing to do with us. Sarkozy, uh, after his election of president, as president in 2007, created a ministry for immigration, integration and national identity that historians drew parallels between that and Vichy. And Brice Otterfer, one of Sarkozy's ministers, organized a, a conference on the integration of immigrants and they chose Vichy as the, the venue uh, for the conference. So there have been a series of events and processes, in other words, that have dramatized continuities between the Vichy period and the, and the present. Would you say that the gradual decline of the French Communist Party and the end of the Cold War in the 90s had an influence on the debate on the resistance as well? I think the attempts to undermine the French Communist Party or the role of Marxism in in French society were underway long before the end of the Cold War. So Furet's work on the, the French Revolution the activities of the the so-called new philosophers in trying to identify totalitarianism in the in the political thought that's influenced the communist tradition some of the debates at the time of the bicentenary of the french revolution have all contributed to an undermining of communist party influence i think in terms of the resistance, there have been attempts to generate controversy over the party's treatment of foreign resistance fighters. For example, there was a controversy about the the role of Raymond and Lucy Aubrac, so resistance heroes whose, whose credentials were, were questioned. But I think it's been difficult to demolish the Communist Party prestige and role in the resistance, partly because the resistance narrative was also a creation of the Gaullists. They emphasised their role at the expense of the, the communists, but the role of communist party activists in the resistance couldn't be denied. And if there's been a, a shift, it's perhaps been one that sees a shift in focus from resistance organization and fighters following Chirac's apology and his emphasis on the other resistance, not just the Free French outside of France, but the role of ordinary people, of individuals in sheltering Jews from persecution and so on, that's that's seen a shift in emphasis rather than an outright revision of the of the Communist Party. Wrong. 
What would you say are the main planks of the mainstream consensus about the Second World War in France today? Or can we even say that there is such a consensus? The role of France in the Second World War is constantly open to debate, turning around similar similar themes, but always refracted through contemporary politics. So the argument that Vichy was an exception, it was a one-off, it was confined to a minority, it has nothing to do with the Republic or the traditions of, of France, then Vichy as continuity. So there have been studies trying to locate continuity between Vichy policies and Republican notions of citizenship, for example, not, not always successfully, but continuities between Vichy and reactionary drifts in contemporary politics. So it's difficult to say that there is, there is a consensus. If you look at the, the period since the war, there have been various stages that I've tried to roughly outline that, that show shifts in perceptions about the complicity of the regime, the extent to which perpetrators were brought to justice, and therefore the, the complicity, the institutional complicity of French institutions, political parties, and so on. But there are also common themes that are important, themes in historical debate, the relationship between radicalizing conservatism and fascism, the uh, significance of authoritarian drifts in liberal states, the relationship between this and emergent far-right fascist organizations the role of the colonial period and uh, comparisons between attempts to bring those responsible for crimes during the occupation to justice with attempts to acknowledge France's role in crimes of the colonial period and attempts to bring individuals responsible for that to justice. So um, there's, a, there's a constantly developing debate over over Vichy and it's difficult to see that there will be ever a consensus about the regime simply because it's subject to reinterpretation as contemporary politics as the shifts and conflicts of contemporary politics develop Many thanks to Jim Wolfries for giving us such a detailed account of the Vichy legacy. If you'd like to know more, I'd recommend starting with Jim's article for Jacobin last year. It's titled, How France's Vichy Regime Became Hitler's Willing Collaborators. Come from the shadow 